Join me in reading Genesis 17, Genesis 17, 1 to 14. 17, 1 to 14. The sign of circumcision. 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations." A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, I entitled this section The Sign of Circumcision, but actually verses 1 to 8 is a renaming of Abraham firstly, and also a promise, a spiritual promise to Abraham and to his descendants. It is mostly Abraham and a spiritual promise to Abraham and his descendants in verses 1 to 8. And then he confirms this by adding a sign or a ritual to the covenant, which is in verses 9 to 14. Now let's first look at verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. He was 99 years old at this point. At this point, he was 99. In Genesis 12, verse 4, it tells us that he was 75 years old when he (coughs) departed from Haran and came to the land of Canaan. He was 75. So from the age of 75 to 99, he does not have a descendant through Sarah. He does not have the promise fulfilled in that way. He has waited these 25 years, about 25 years, for his single descendant to come from his own loins. In that meantime, he has married Hagar, and she has borne him Ishmael, And Ishmael, by this point, is 13 years old, as it says in chapter 17, verse 25. 1725, this chapter, Abraham is 99 and Ishmael is 13. 
So in all this time, some aspects of the promises of God have yet to be fulfilled, and he's still waiting. He's been converted already for 25 years, but yet the promises of God in these ways have not yet been fulfilled. He's still waiting and waiting. He's being patient, in other words. Then it says in verse 1, the Lord appeared to him. It, the Lord appeared. When it says the Lord appeared, the Bible means the Lord appeared in some physical, tangible, real way. It's not talking about a dream or a vision necessarily. It's talking about an actual appearance. We know that to be the case from 17 verse 22. The same incident, the same series of, of discourses to Abraham. And in 1722, it says... And when he finished talking with him, that is, when God finished talking with Abraham, God went up from Abraham. God descended to speak to Abraham in some physical way, and then he ascended after he finished speaking to Abraham. And who would this be? This would be none other than Christ Jesus himself. We know this to be the case from various texts of Scripture. One key text is John 1.18. John 1.18 teaches us no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. At any time, it right. says. At any time. Which means at any time in human history when God is manifested to the people, it has to be Christ. Because it cannot be God the Father himself. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, John 1.18 says. The one who was in the bosom, or who is now in the bosom of the Father, has explained or revealed, exegeted the Father. This is Christ and Christ alone. <coughs> Turn to... I, uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8 also reveals the same truth that the Lord Jesus appeared to Abraham. John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is a very clear statement where Christ our Lord tells his enemies, the Jews, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, and he saw it and was glad. These things that the Lord Jesus revealed to Abraham, he knew who was revealing these truths to him. He knew it was not a demon, a false god. He knew it was not uh, fic uh, fictitious. He knew it was not human invention. He knew it was the true and living God, the person of Christ, revealing himself to him. Abraham knew this and he rejoiced in this. The Jews wondered how this could be since Jesus was not even 50 years old and Abraham had lived 2,000 years before the incarnation of Christ. How could this happen? And he answers the question, how it happened. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. 
I am. And this means that Jesus takes upon himself the name of God revealed in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. When God told Moses, who was speaking to him from the bush, I am who I am, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. Jesus used this to identify himself as the deity, the true deity, the true and living God, who revealed himself to Abraham, and Abraham knew it. He understood it, and he believed in it, and he rejoiced in it. The Jews knew that Jesus was claiming this. That's why in John 8, 59, they pick up stones to throw at him because they wanted to put him to death because in their mind, Jesus was committing blasphemy. Now, one other place we may look <clears throat> is in Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 16, Matthew 13, 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Jesus here says that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. Abraham was told of the things that would happen, and he longed for, he desired to see those things actually happen. Jesus commends his own contemporary disciples because they do see it. They see it spiritually and they see it physically. Abraham saw it spiritually, but did not see it physically in that he was not an eyewitness of all of the physical, marvelous things Jesus said and did during his ministry. But he was told about what he would do. And that's what it says here. Many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see. And in the case of Abraham, Abraham was both a prophet. From Genesis 20, verse 7, it says that he is a prophet, but he was also a righteous man. He was both in the one person. And this is what Abraham rejoiced to see. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to know that it was Christ who revealed himself to Abraham? Because one of the most important pillars of believing in one gospel throughout the whole Bible is that Abraham, who is the father of the faithful, that Abraham himself had Christ as the object of his faith. He did not have God in a vague sense as the object of his faith. He had the specific person and work of Christ as the object of his faith. There is only one gospel according to Galatians 1, 6 to 10. And if we or an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So there must only be one gospel. And the most important factor of that gospel, element of that gospel, is the person in whom we put our faith. Yes. Not the faith itself, not our righteousness reckoned to us, which is all good, not the gift of faith or the gift of righteousness imputed to us, but the object of our faith, the source of our faith, who is Christ himself. And if we don't believe in him, then our faith is useless. Right. We're still in our sins. And Abraham, therefore, believed in Christ. Christ appeared to him. And this is what he says, verse 1, Genesis 17, 1. I am God Almighty. First, as he reiterates this covenant to Abraham... He reminds Abraham that he is God Almighty. 
Abraham already knew him to be God Almighty because in chapter 14, 19, Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor or creator of heaven and earth. Abraham already knew this to be the case. But to confirm, but to reiterate, but to encourage the faith of Abraham, God reminds him of who he is, his character, his omnipotent character. He is able to do anything that he desires. Right. <coughs> Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Yes. Jeremiah 32.17, ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is impossible to you. Nothing is impossible to you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12.9, for my power, for power is perfected in weakness, meaning Christ's power is perfected in Paul's weakness. This is God Almighty. And he reminds us, or reminds Abraham of that, and reminds us as well of this fact, that if we keep the nature of God, the character of God, the attributes of God front and center in our life, then faith will come from that, or it will be based on that. Not only will faith be, but also holiness or righteousness. Look at the next phrase. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. God's grace had already been bestowed on Abraham. But now that God's grace is in the life of Abraham, converting him, changing him, transforming him, what is next for Abraham? Right. What's next is walking before God and being blameless, living a righteous or holy life. Blamelessness does not mean that God will produce perfection in us in this lifetime. Blamelessness means that we are seeking to please God and our life is producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Blamelessness does not mean perfection or sinless perfection because we will not be perfect until we meet Christ face to face. Only then will perfection come. However, godliness or progression in godliness, gradual growth in Christ must be evident in every professor of Christ. Whoever professes Christ must have accompanying that profession godliness. If there is no godliness, then there is emptiness. If there is no godliness, then there's only futility. If there is no godliness, then there is only a denial of God. Titus 1.16, professing to be wise, excuse me, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say or describe our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's true. That's the conversion from ungodliness or from being uh, uh, an evil, having an evil, unbelieving heart to having a good and believing heart, a transformed heart. But Ephesians 2.10 says, 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has uh, created beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you, Father. This is the way we should be now, and that's what God expected of Abraham as well, to walk before God and be blameless. Further, verse 2, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. He is establishing in this oracle, uh, establishing, confirming the covenant between Abraham and between God. And after saying that this is what he's going to do, he puts a promise out there, or he puts hope out there. He puts some word of assurance and confidence out there for Abraham to believe. I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, Abraham doesn't deserve any of this. No. All of this is by the grace of God. It's by the word of God, by the will of God, by the wisdom of God, by the power of God, by the grace of God for the glory of God. Yes. That's the way it is. But what God does is he takes a worthless sinner and he uplifts him. He takes the one that was humbled by his sin and then he exalts him. He takes the last and he makes him first. This is what God does, and that's what he's doing to Abraham. He's telling Abraham, I will multiply you exceedingly. He's giving a promise to Abraham, a promise of the future, a promise of hope to, that Abraham might put his faith in that. Now notice, multiply you exceedingly. Abraham never lived to see it. It's a promise of something in the future that Abraham never actually saw. And this is the nature of faith. Right. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is the kind of faith that Abraham had in seeing that which is unseen. He had faith in the one who is unseen and the words of the one who is unseen. This is the way he was. This is the way we have to be. Yep. Otherwise, we cannot please God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a, uh, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We must diligently seek him and know that there is a reward that awaits us. That's Hebrews eleven six. Further, when Abraham heard these words, which he knew, he knew who was revealing himself to Abraham. He, <coughs> he knew the character of the one. <coughs> he knew the commandment of the one, walk before me and be blameless. He knew the promises of the one who just spoke to him. When he th contemplated these truths, immediately... What does he do? And Abram fell on his face. Yes. Abram fell on his face. It caused him to worship God. It caused him to want to be so much in, in a state of humility and contrition that he put his faith, face to the ground to worship God. He did not deserve to look up. He, he wanted to look down at, and instead of looking up. He did the same in 1717. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart. He fell on his face there. 
You remember what happened in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6 to 8. God revealed himself there to Moses, and Moses, he does the same. (coughs) Moses does the same in Exodus 34, 6 to 8. And the Lord, the Lord God, passed before him, and he said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, who, for, uh, <clears throat> who has compassion on thousands, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God revealed his character and what he does. And what did Moses do? And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Peter the apostle did the same thing. When he understood the character of Christ, he did the same in Luke 5. Remember that incident when they had gone fishing and they didn't catch anything and then Jesus told them to throw their nets over for a catch? And then what, when they did receive many fish, so much that the boats, uh, they began to sink in the boat. Verse 8, Luke 5, 8. And when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The same is true of John the Apostle. In Revelation chapter 1, he sees a vision of Christ. And after he sees this vision of Christ, 117, Revelation 117, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now, this is the proper response to hearing about the nature of God and the works of God. It should cause the man of God to fall on his face to worship God. It does not cause in him frivolity. It does not cause in him amusement. It does not cause in him a desire to promote himself, but to demote himself. He must increase, but I must decrease, as John the Baptist said, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what it should cause in everyone. Then, God further in Genesis 17, changes Abraham's name. Genesis 17, 4 and 5. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. God's covenant was already with Abraham. He's reminding him of that. However, at this point, he's going to remind Abraham that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. This was already revealed to him in Genesis 12, 3, in 15, 7. It was already revealed to him, but he reiterates it, but reiterates it by changing his name. Abram itself, that that word means exalted father. 
That the name Abraham means exalted father. I'm sorry, Abram means exalted father. But when God changed his name to Abraham, it means father of a multitude. Father of a multitude. Instead of Abraham himself being named exalted father, the name is changed to Abraham, father of a multitude, because it would be a fa- he would be a father of a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations. God, <coughs> by his grace, gave this kind of good name, different name, exalted name to Abraham. Not because of him, but because of God's grace, which would be at work in his life and in the life of his descendants. Notice in verse 6. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, I believe to correctly understand in what sense he meant father of a multitude, father of a multitude of nations, we have to consider the spiritual component of these promises. Not the physical component. The physical component is assumed in order to fulfill the spiritual component. Let me uh, explain what I mean by that. The spiritual component has to be front and center and the primary promise here. But in order to fulfill the spiritual part of it, the physical has to be embedded. It has to be assumed in Abraham's life. When what is the physical component of which I speak? It is the fact that he needs to have a phys- uh, many physical descendants. He needs to have a nation that comes from his loins, from his from his line, from his bloodline, there needs to be a physical nation. That is the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, there needs to be kings that come forth from them, so on. This necessarily has to take place. But what is the purpose in having that lineage, in having those many descendants? What is the purpose of having them? The purpose of having them is to have the single descendant Christ, who, who therefore from that single descendant will be the source, the basis, the reason for the redemption of the nations. The redemption of the nations. And when there is the redemption of the nations, when there are people from all nations, all tribes, who believe in Christ, in that way they are descendants of Abraham. In that way, they are descendants. Now, how do we know that this was what God meant when he announced it here? How do, how do we know? Look, for example, in 17, Genesis 17, he says, Make you exceedingly fruitful. <coughs> Make nations of you. Kings shall come forth from you. Kings from you. 
Then he says in 7 that this is an everlasting covenant. Eternal. It lasts forever, right? Everlasting covenant. But the nation of Israel does not and will not have kings that reign on the throne of Israel in the land of Canaan forever and ever. That's not happening. Is it happening right now? No. no. It hasn't happened for at over 2,000 years. They have not had kings. They have not had kings on the throne of Israel since the destruction of the kingdom of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Right. So for 2,500 years, they haven't had this happen. So he must mean it in an eternal way, an everlasting way. This everlasting covenant is the covenant of peace. It's the covenant of, of uh, grace. It is the covenant in which our salvation is based. Right. It's spiritual. Further, he says, to be God to you. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. To be God to you. Well, he is not God in the true sense, in the beneficial sense, to every single physical descendant of Abraham. He was never that. He was not that to Ishmael. We'll learn later that Ishmael was wicked and he was a reprobate. Not to Ishmael. Not to Esau, who was a grandson of Abraham. He was not that to Esau. He wasn't God to Esau in a true redemptive sense. He was in a general sense, but not in a true redemptive sense. He was not God to him. And he, but he means it in a redemptive sense because he's talking about the everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant there in verse 7. <clears throat> and then he also says that all the land of Canaan will be their possession as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Right. How in the world... Will they possess the land of Canaan eternally? How could they do that? Because they have not possessed the land of Canaan or the land of Israel or as some say the land of Palestine. They have not uh, owned that forever or since the time of Abraham or since the time of Moses or since the time of David. They haven't owned it. And the Bible nowhere says that the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will own it regardless of faith, regardless of faith in Christ, whether they believe in Christ or not. It doesn't say that they're going to hold it and possess it forever and ever. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. In fact, it teaches the opposite. It teaches the opposite, that these promises must be understood as their primary purpose to have Christ as the focus, to have the spiritual descendants of Abraham who have faith in Christ from among many nations, and that we will possess the earth as the land, and the land of Canaan is a model, a type, an illustration of our possession of the earth, the heavens and the earth, forever and ever, because we will reign and rule with Christ. Right. Let me prove that from various cross-references. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, 3 verses 15 and 16. Galatians three fifteen and 16. 
Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Why does the apostle have to say this in verse 15? He has to say that the covenant that was already announced cannot be subverted. It cannot be contradicted. It cannot be abolished because it was first made by God. That is, this, these promises to Abraham. If God made promises to Abraham, how could it be that the covenant that God made with Moses 500 years after Abraham can subvert, contradict, and abolish the promises God made to Abraham. It's impossible. That's his argument in verse 15. So we must understand the law of Moses or the Mosaic covenant properly in order to understand its relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. So now, after saying that, he says in 16, but you people have all misunderstood. You know better, and some of your teachers have even told you this, so I'm not entirely off base when I say this. You will know this to be the case, and that is the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to the seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. He uses an argument that they know that some of their teachers, some of their rabbis have said that none of these promises to Abraham makes sense unless they are all fulfilled in the coming Messiah, in the coming Christ. They don't make sense unless Christ is going to come into the world and he establishes his kingdom forever. And that's why we put our hope in King Messiah. King Messiah, which was a favorite phrase of the Jews. He, he knows that the Jews know, his enemies even in Galatians know, that their own teachers teach this. That's why he uses this argument and says, you know, based on the original context of Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, 21, where all of these promises are made, that God had primarily in mind his one son, his, the son of Abraham, who would be the son of God and son of man, have flesh and have deity, that he would be the savior of the world. And based on his salvific work on the cross, then the nations of the earth would be blessed. That is the basis on which this occurs. So Paul says, this is what Abraham knew. This was what Abraham was taught. Further, notice verse 26, Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. For neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. Abraham's offspring. And who is a part of that? Jew and Greek. Slave and free man. Male and female. Whoever. We're all one in Christ. We're all sons of Abraham. We're all offspring of Abraham. 
in Christ. That's the way Paul interprets it. Right. Now, in reference to the land, in reference to the land itself, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23. Leviticus 25:23. This is Moses, 500 years after Abraham. Moses has not given the people possession of the land yet. It's going to happen with Joshua, under Joshua. <coughs> under Joshua, they will possess the land. But even before they possess it, Moses gives them instructions on how they're supposed to view that land. 25:23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. The people are aliens and sojourners with God. Where? He's not talking about the wilderness wanderings. He's talking about the land of Canaan. He's talking about the land of Canaan as being a place of their alienation from God, meaning they're not in the presence of God directly, and that they are sojourners with God there in that land. They were told, they were told and they were taught by Moses that the land of Canaan is a symbol that they are pilgrims on the earth, but it is a symbol of the eternal state when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. When there's a new heavens and a new earth, it's a symbol of that. It's a sign of that. How do we know that? Further, notice with me Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. 31, 12. 31, 12. When they practiced the, the Sabbath commandment, what were they to keep in mind? When they practiced the Sabbath commandment, what did, were they to keep in mind? 31, 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He says, observe the Sabbaths, because this is a sign. It's a sign that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you who sets you apart to understand the meaning of this sign. 17, 31, 17. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. He calls it a sign. Why? Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. What was this land of Canaan? And what was the Sabbath commandment all intended to indicate? What did it signify? A sign signifies something, right? Sure. What did it signify? Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, 
Lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news, that is the gospel. The gospel preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard it did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them fail to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest. What is the Sabbath rest for the people of God? It is Yes, it is signified in the Lord's day or in the Sabbath commandment. It's signified there, but what is it signifying? Eternal, it's, it's eternal life, eternal rest. It signifies that. It's a sign of that. The land of Canaan was a sign. The Sabbath was a sign. And now we practice the Lord's day as a sign of this Sabbath rest. Because it says in 2 Peter 3, 3.13, for we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yes, we are. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this will be eternally the situation. Right. Forever and ever. <laughs> so this is why he calls it here an everlasting covenant, Genesis 17.7, and why he calls it an everlasting possession. I will be their God, which is also what it says in Revelation 21. When the new heavens and the new earth are created, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their father and they shall be my sons. This is the way of the eternal state. Next. Next is verses 9 to 14. The sign of circumcision. The sign of circumcision. Keep in mind, Abraham is 99 years old. So at least 25 years after Abraham was saved, because he entered the land of Canaan, he left Haran and entered Canaan when he was 75 years old. So at least 25 years later, this is instituted. And I say at least 25 because a few years before that, he departed from Ur, he lived in Haran for a few years, and then he migrated to Canaan, and he was saved sometime in Ur a few years before. So for at least 25 years, there is no circumcision. But later in his life, when he's 99 years old, this is instituted. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. When he says, you shall keep my covenant, he means it in this ritual that he is about to announce. He's already been keeping the covenant in other ways. Right. He's been obeying him. 
and honoring God in other ways. Now when he says, you shall keep my covenant, he means keep the sign of the covenant, keep the ritual of the covenant from now onward. Now you shall do that. Because he says in 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is new. Circumcision did not precede Genesis 17. This is the first time we read of circumcision. The first time. Which means what? Was Abraham saved before this or after? Before. Before. Was Noah saved? Noah existed before Abraham, right? Sure. Was Noah saved before circumcision or after circumcision? Before. Before circumcision. Noah was uncircumcised. How about Enoch, Genesis 5? Enoch, who was not and got, uh, for God took him. He took him up. Was Enoch circumcised or uncircumcised? Uncircumcised. Uncircumcised. And then what about Abel? Was Abel circumcised or uncircumcised? Uncircumcised. And Adam? Was Adam circumcised or uncircumcised? He was uncircumcised. <coughs> this should be clear by any plain, simple, straightforward, objective, honest reading of the Bible, that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. If we make circumcision necessary for salvation, then we have undermined salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We we add a work to what God does inside of us. We can't add a work. We can't say it's God's work in us, faith plus a work. And this, if there's any work that anybody should put forward, at least in the biblical period, in the Old Testament period, it would be the work of circumcision. That's why it became the, the destructive heresy of the book of Galatians, because that's what the Judaizers wanted to do. They wanted to add circumcision to Christ. And Paul says that that is impossible. It's a different gospel, and it's under a curse. It cannot happen. So when we read this chapter, we must keep that in mind, which is actually exposited just like this in Romans chapter 4. Let's make this point very clear by going to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. In his exposition of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, he says in 4, verse 9, Is this blessing, this blessing of forgiveness, is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. 
For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, A father of many nations have I made you. That's a quote from Genesis 17, 5. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to, to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Paul's argument is the obvious argument. Paul is the, an expert expositor, expert interpreter. And Paul says, this is cl- plain and clear to all of you. You know full well that Abraham was reckoned righteous before he was circumcised. And why did God do it that way? He did it that way to show us that circumcision is unnecessary for salvation. Because Abraham was saved without being circumcised. And all who preceded him as well, as we could take his argument further, that all who preceded him were not circumcised, Therefore, why did God do it like this? He did it this way to show those who are circumcised that it does not depend on circumcision, but that it depends on faith, just like Abraham had faith, so that Jews and Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, might all have one model of faith and put their faith in Christ just as Abraham did. That's the purpose. Now back to Genesis 17, 17, 11. 17, 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant, or rather slave, a slave who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a slave who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 11. Is circumcision the covenant itself or a sign of the covenant. It says it's a sign. It's a sign of it. This means that it does not save, it signifies salvation. It signifies, it's an illustration, a type, a shadow of salvation, but it does not save itself. It cannot be the one or the thing that saves. It's a sign of salvation. Now one might might ask, Why circumcision? Why circumcision? Well, I believe that there is probably a few reasons for why circumcision. The the first one is to keep in mind the promised seed, because the seed comes from the man. The promised seed of Christ. To keep in mind 
that that was to be their hope, the promised seed of Christ. Another is circumcision in the scriptures becomes a sign of a changed heart. The Bible will call it a circumcised heart. A circumcised heart. That is, God, by the work of Christ, because one has faith in Christ, God has uh, transformed that heart. He has transformed that heart. He has circumcised that heart. He has changed the heart. He has made it from stony to tender so that the one who has the new heart believes in Christ. For that reason. And then thirdly, I think that in doing this ritual of circumcision, God reminds us of our, our lowliness, that that which we, if we were to expose it, and if we were to talk about this in any other context, if we were to talk about the clipping off of a piece of skin of the male organ, if we were to talk about this in any other context, would this not be a shameful thing? Would this, not, would, this, would this not be something that we would think about as, you know, why would we talk about something that's shameful, something that's private, something that we don't normally speak about? And people who do speak of their private organs openly, they usually do it in a shameless way, right? Do they not? Yeah. When they crack dirty jokes, they speak of these things in a shameless way. So it reminds us of our own shame. The circumcision reminds us of shame and the need to have our shame, our guilt, forgiven. Forgiven in Christ. Yeah. Now, on the matter of circumcision of the heart, I've already shown to you the seed is Christ. But on the matter of circumcision of the heart, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, where Moses who wrote Genesis is the same Moses who wrote Deuteronomy. And in 10.16, Deuteronomy 10.16, he tells us, what we need. He says, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. This is a command, an imperative that says, circumcise then your heart, and literally it says, the foreskin of your heart. He's using a metaphor. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and stiffen your neck no more. This is what we all need. It's necessary for us to possess it. Right. So Moses uses this in a spiritual way because he understood Genesis 17 to be a spiritual purpose for the sign of circumcision, a sign to illustrate the fact that we need a circumcised heart. Now, if we're going to obtain a circumcised heart, how will that come about? Genesis, or Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30 Verse 6. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. If it's going to come about, it will come about in this way. 30 verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Who is going to circumcise the heart? God. It doesn't say God cooperates with us. Right. It doesn't say we use our will 
our goodwill, our free will, to cooperate with God. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. And what will be the result? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the greatest commandment, right? Yep. The greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, to love God with all our being. That will result and in order that you may live. So we cannot love God and we cannot have the life of God without God circumcising the heart. Amen. Transforming the heart, circumcising the heart, making it from closed to open, from stony to tender, whatever analogy, the Bible uses these analogies to say that it's a one-way street from heaven down here for God to change it and to cause us to love him and bring life into our life. Amen. It's a one-way street from God to us. Does it not say in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. How did he first love us? He first loved us by circumcising our heart and giving us faith and repentance as gifts. That's the sequence of events. He first changed our heart. This is what he did in Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God, the Lord, opened the heart of Lydia. Although women were there, only one woman was saved. And how was she saved? Why was she saved? Because the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. When Paul's preaching, he's preaching Christ. He's preaching the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the need for us to repent of sin, to believe in Christ for eternal life and forgiveness, right? That would have been the content of his message. So how was, how was Lydia going to respond to that? To respond, to believe and repent? The Lord opened her heart in order for her to respond. That's the same sequence we have in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And that's what the sign of circumcision shows. Okay? Now back to the sign. We'll notice in verses 12 to 14 that every male in the household of Abraham was to be circumcised, including his slaves including his slaves. And this also includes Ishmael, which we'll see at the end of the chapter. This shows us <coughs> that in the Bible, it is possible for many people to have the sign that God requires of them, but not the changed heart that is necessary for their salvation. It's possible for many people to have the sign, whether that, that sign is, is conducted by themselves, like in the case of Abraham or others who were already adults, they did it themselves. And in Abraham's case, he was already saved. But in other adults or near adults like Ishmael, whatever definition you want, he was 13 years old. He, he was circumcised. He was circumcised, and yet he was not a believer. This reminds us of this fact, which the prophets and even Moses, they harp on this fact. You cannot read the first few chapters of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any one of the other prophets 
without them coming out of the gate roaring like a lion. They come out of the gate with, with both of their boxing gloves on and they are heavyweight champions. That's the way they come out of the gate. They come out of the gate railing against the people's sins and telling them, you are conducting all these rituals, but I don't care about any of it. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. They are a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them, he says. He, he, they rail against the rituals of the people because the people don't have a changed heart. They don't believe in the gospel and they pra practice all of their rituals and they put hope in the rituals and think that if they do the sign of the cross, they get a little holy water sprinkled on them. They get baptized by immersion or whatever. They have something happen to them. Then everything is fine between them and God when that's not the case. Amen. We know that that's not the case. And God here is showing us that he may give signs that we all should practice, we all should obey, but don't put your confidence in that sign. Put your confidence in the thing signified by the sign. Not the sign itself, but the thing signified. No one walks into a barn and hopes to become a cow, right? That the barn signifies it's a place of cattle. But just because you walk into it doesn't transform you. You can't think that way. You have to have a changed heart in order for that to happen. Now, that fact, the fact that people don't understand this is reiterated in several places of the New Testament. <laughs> Firstly, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. 2.25 Romans 2.25 2.25 29 <laughs> For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Means you're practically just like a pagan who doesn't know anything. <laughs> It doesn't matter. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and a circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Further, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. Working through love. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 14. 
But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. These rituals don't matter unless we believe in the cross of Christ. That's where it matters. We all must believe in the cross. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.